Chapter 4. Popular Theology's Traditional Stronghold. A cluster of biblical passages is cited in support of a conclusion opposed to the one for which we are appealing. A famous so-called proof text is found in 2 Corinthians 5, where it's argued that Paul described death as being, quote, absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Backed by Philippians 1, verses 21 to 23, where Paul desired, quote, to depart and be with Christ, and the remarks of Jesus to the thief on the cross, the case for an intermediate consciousness in heaven at the moment of death is often considered as settled. It is maintained that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus can only confirm that decision. On the surface, certainly these passages might seem to support the Greek notion of disembodiment. But if resurrection is to be genuinely a resurrection from the dead, as the New Testament describes it, how can it also, according to the popular scheme, be the conferring of the spiritual body on already living departed persons? Would this really be a resurrection at all in terms of the Hebrew thinking? The traditional idea becomes even more perplexing when we see that the New Testament verb describing the act of resurrecting the dead is the ordinary word for to awaken from sleep. What possible sense can be made of the waking up of already fully conscious spirits in possession of the beatific vision? Serious difficulties. The fact is the average churchgoer has not given the matter much attention. His assumption is that what he's always believed must be based on the Bible. Yet attempts at squaring the traditional teaching with the New Testament run into serious difficulties, not the least of which is the conspicuous absence in the New Testament of any direct reference to the dead being now present with Christ in heaven. For while the New Testament constantly states that Jesus has, quote, passed into the heavens to sit at the right hand of the Father, no such thing is said of the dead. They are always pictured as having fallen asleep and as remaining asleep until the resurrection. And the resurrection is invariably placed in the future at the return of Christ to establish his kingdom on earth. If the moment of death is made to coincide with the moment of resurrection, then each individual must be resurrected in isolation from the community of the faithful. And this is, of course, an impossible idea for the biblical writers. For there is one moment of glory, and one only, to which all the New Testament writers look forward, as to say the resurrection of all the faithful at the future arrival of the Messiah in glory. There can be no doubt that what Paul hoped to attain to was the resurrection of the dead, to coincide with the reappearance of Jesus at his parousia, second coming, at the end of the age. I quote, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection 
from the dead. This one thing I do, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like his glorious body. That's a quotation from Philippians chapter 3, verses 11 to 14, and verses 20 and 21. This passage contains the three indispensable elements of Paul's eschatological view. That's to say, resurrection, second coming, the Lord from heaven, and a change of state from mortal to immortal. In complete agreement with the verses quoted, the great exposition of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 places the wakening of the dead in Christ at the second coming and equates this event with the moment when mortality is to be exchanged for immortality. I quote from Paul now, In Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22, 23, 42, 29, and 50 to 54. Irreconcilable contradiction. We are bound to ask how this passage can possibly be reconciled with the popular concept that the departed dead are already in possession of immortality. Surely it's patently clear that it is resurrection alone which confers immortality. And resurrection is unquestionably placed, quote, at his coming at the last trumpet. It is then that the dead shall be raised, that is, wakened, made alive. Is it not clear beyond all question that the dead must remain in the grave till they are raised from it? There is no suggestion that resurrection means the reuniting of an already conscious spirit with its body. 
though certainly the creation of the new immortal beings must involve the infusion of spirit into the new body to produce, quote, spiritual persons, but the spirit is not the individual subsisting as a conscious personality apart from the body. Only after the resurrection would it be appropriate to refer to the transformed saints as immortal spirits. We are faced with an irreconcilable contradiction if the dead have already been made alive before the resurrection. For it is quite specifically stated that they are to be made alive at his coming. That's in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the question had arisen in the minds of the believers as to what would be the state of those Christians who had died before the expected return or parousia of Jesus. Now, Paul could have so easily removed all anxiety by pointing out that the dead in Christ were already with him, having at the moment of their death overcome the grave and passed to their reward in heaven. It is well known that Paul says nothing of the sort. Rather, he reinforces the certainty that at the coming of Jesus, quote, the dead in Christ, as to say, those asleep, verse 14, compare with that 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10, those dead will be resurrected and united with those who survive until the great day. The antidote to despair was thus the prospect of the resurrection at the return of Christ, not the consciousness of the dead in another location, of which intermediate state Paul says not one word. Such is our reluctance to question the accepted scheme that we have not taken seriously the remarks of New Testament scholars who, though they may not be so concerned with what we choose to believe, nevertheless make it clear that the New Testament writers pinned their entire hope on the second coming and the resurrection to occur at that time and not before. The important question is whether we have not tried to, quote, jump the gun in ascribing immortality to departed spirits apart from resurrection. To do this, we must begin with the assumption of an intermediate conscious state of the dead between death and the resurrection, and then, so to speak, find it in the New Testament. A more scientific method would surely be to start with an open mind and test the received hypothesis against Scripture. There are two passages in the New Testament which are supposed to provide solid evidence for Paul's belief in the departed dead being immediately with Christ. But before examining these, we note the remarks of J.A.T. Robinson about 1 Corinthians 15, quoted earlier, the resurrection chapter. His observations suggest that there's been some foul play 
in this matter of trying to square popular belief with Paul's teaching. This fact should arouse our suspicions, for it's clear that if the popular view does not accord with the Bible, we should expect just such evidence of unfair handling of the New Testament. J.T. Robinson says, quote, The reading of 1 Corinthians 15 at funerals reinforces the impression that this chapter is about the moment of death. In fact, it revolves around two points, the third day and the last day. The modern age tries to apply Paul's language to a single resurrection thought of as following immediately upon death. That's a quotation from J.T. Robinson's In the End God. These facts are sufficient to show that this central passage, 1 Corinthians 15, has not been allowed its proper sense. It has been forced to lend support to an idea unknown to Paul. There is evidence of similar mishandling in the other section of Scripture, normally quoted in support of the popular view. J.A.T. Robinson has this to say, Quote, it is to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8, that the modern view, if it refers to Scripture at all, makes its appeal. The words are, we are willing rather to be at home with the Lord. This is commonly interpreted to mean, in clear opposition to 1 Corinthians 15, that our spiritual body is waiting for us to put on at the moment of death. And a quotation from J.T. Robinson's book, In the End, God. We refer again to John Robinson's account of, quote, the remarkable transformation which overtook Christian eschatology almost as soon as the ink of the New Testament was dry and it affects the center of interest or pivotal point of the whole subject. J.T. Robinson contrasts the popular view of eschatology and notes, quote, how foreign is this perspective which we take for granted to the whole New Testament picture upon which Christianity is supposedly based. For in the New Testament, point around which hope and interest resolve is not the moment of death at all, but the appearance of Christ in the glory of his kingdom. And a quotation from J.T. Robinson's book, In the End, God. The necessary key to the problem. This analysis by a leading New Testament scholar provides us with the necessary key to unraveling the perplexing discrepancy between the actual facts of the New Testament in regard to life after death and traditional thinking on the subject. The truth is that the popular scheme represents, quote, a remarkable transformation, to use J.A.T. Robinson's words, a remarkable transformation of the New Testament plan. It is, quote, quite foreign 
to the New Testament upon which Christianity is, quote, supposedly based. The only wise course is to face the unpalatable fact that these views are traditional, not biblical. It is no exaggeration to say that the teachings of the apostles have been mishandled in an effort to find justification for a view of eschatology unknown to the writers of the New Testament. The all-important moment of the future coming of Christ to establish his kingdom has been replaced by the moment of the individual's death. The common understanding of this matter is therefore not recognizably Christian by New Testament standards and on a question so central to the faith. History shows, however, that rather than admit this, we persist with the illusion that a satisfactory compromise can be achieved between original Christianity and its later transformation. There is an unwillingness to disturb tradition, but such a compromise can only be attempted by a subtle change of language. For the New Testament speaks only of the resurrection of dead people who are to be raised to life at the future return of Christ. We speak, and our creeds reflect this, of the resurrection of the body, thus opening the way for the insertion of the belief that the conscious person in a disembodied spirit form has already gone to his reward in heaven, while his body alone awaits the resurrection at the last day. We attempt thus to preserve some significance for the future corporate resurrection so clearly taught in the Bible by maintaining that it is a resurrection of bodies only as distinct from real persons. The crucial question we have been considering is whether the New Testament countenances such a distinction between body and a separable, fully conscious soul or spirit. The inevitable result of the new so-called twist which was given to eschatology is, of course, to move the center of interest away from the future resurrection to the moment of death and, in consequence, and this is highly significant, away from the great event which the New Testament associates with the future resurrection, and that is the second coming and the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth. Quite clearly, it is what happens to the conscious person after death which captures our interest, not what happens to his body. The transformed system, adopting alien platonic ideas, introduced principally at Alexandria in the third century, imposed upon the original faith the foreign, that's to say foreign to the Hebrews, the foreign concept of the immortality of the soul. 
scope was then available for placing the so-called departed soul in conscious bliss at the moment of death. The whole idea of resurrection at a later time then became quite secondary, if not quite unnecessary. No more deadly blow could have been struck at the New Testament eschatological or future hope. Unfair handling of Scripture. The business of trying to read the popular system into the New Testament writings involves some very unfair handling of the two or three passages which stand the best chance of being accommodated to the traditional belief. For at all costs, our beliefs must be backed by chapter and verse, so we imagine. To admit that this cannot be done within the laws of sound exegesis places us in the difficult position of having to admit that what we've been believing is not Christian. Faced with this dilemma, scholars of the, quote, demythologizing school claim that one eschatological system is as good as another. They hold that all are, quote, myths, and whether they are found inside or outside the New Testament, they offer no divinely authoritative statement about what actually happens to us after death. However, for those who are convinced that Paul's view owes its origin, as he himself claims to the Spirit of Jesus, such an escape into agnosticism is not satisfactory at all. And at that point, we are left with no course but to abandon the traditional view in favor of the safety of the original Christian teaching preserved in the New Testament. Church history shows that there's been an earnest minority within many denominational persuasions who have taken this course, while the mainstream has persisted with its traditions. The challenge to choose the apostolic faith over the later tradition faces each believer. Justification for the almost universally held opinion that Christianity teaches that the dead are now consciously with God at the instant of death is commonly based on Philippians 1, verse 23. Paul here finds himself torn between the desire to remain with the believers and his longing to depart to be with the Lord. Corroboration of the received tradition is sought in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul there expresses the wish to be, quote, absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Isolated from their immediate context, from the wider context of both Old and New Testaments as a whole, no doubt these verses can be made to bolster the popular view. A closer look will, however, show on what shaky ground the whole attempt rests. Firstly, it is undeniable that the New Testament everywhere strains towards the parousia, 
or second coming and the resurrection of the faithful which is consistently placed at the great day as the collective resurrection of all the saints. Paul has a precise and simple system of resurrection. I quote, In Christ all shall be made alive, those who belong to Christ at his coming. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he offers comfort to the believers in connection with those Christians who are said to be sleeping, an extraordinary term to use if he thought that they were already fully conscious in bliss with the Lord. There's no need for the surviving Christians to grieve because all will be reunited at the future resurrection. In a similar situation today, the church would be consoled with claims that the dead are already alive with God. The fact that Paul says nothing like this only goes to show the gulf between the two systems. For the contemporary churchgoer, the future resurrection can at best be only an afterthought. All that is really decisive, having, as he thinks, taken place at death. What does Paul mean? What then of Paul's statement in Philippians 1 verse 23 about departing to be with Christ? If this single verse is read without reference to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4 and Paul's subsequent remarks in the same letter, Philippians 3, verses 11 to 21, it would be possible to gain the impression that Paul expected to be with Christ immediately at death. But this would be to contradict his whole thinking as we find it explained much more fully in the other passages. What Paul was really aiming for is fortunately clarified later in the same epistle to the Philippians. I quote, If by any means I might attain to the resurrection, we look for the Saviour, Jesus Christ, from heaven, who will transform our body of humiliation so that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 11 and 20. It is beyond question that he here knows of no goal other than the attainment of resurrection at the return of Christ. It would therefore be quite unfair to read Paul's remarks about departing to be with the Lord as relating to a quite different aspiration, one not involving resurrection, and thus quite distinct from his desire for the last day. The popular belief implies that a Christian can be fully alive with Christ apart from the resurrection. This will mean that death is not really death in any real sense, but the continuation of life in another realm. At that point, resurrection from the dead becomes meaningless. 
Paul, in fact, speaks in Philippians 1, verse 23, simply of his departure to be with Christ through death and subsequent resurrection. For the dying, their next second of consciousness will find them alive in the resurrection. Departure from this life will mean being with Christ at his future coming. If we now consider his statement about being absent from the body and present with the Lord, we shall find that it too is set in a context which, because of its striking similarity to 1 Corinthians 15, written only a year later, it must refer also to a future resurrection not to any imagined intermediate state following immediately upon death. This can be seen clearly from the general statement with which Paul prefaces his account of the Christian hope of attaining a, quote, spiritual body. I quote, We believe, therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us also, with Jesus and will present us with you. Therefore, we do not faint. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 16. These remarks should warn us not to try to read into Paul's following discussion ideas about a future state divorced from resurrection. There are three clear points of contact between 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, and when these are noted, it will be quite impossible to maintain that Paul is dealing with two different termini, or end points. The first feature common to both passages is the notion of being, quote, clothed with immortality, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2 and 4. I quote, for indeed we groan in this tabernacle, longing to be clothed with our dwelling, which comes to us from heaven. We do not wish to be unclothed, that's to say disembodied, but to be clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up in life. We have exactly the same point being made in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. I quote, for it is necessary that this corruptible be clothed with immortality. Then shall come to pass the word that has been written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Secondly, common to both passages, is the appearance of the Lord for salvation from, not in, heaven. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 2 we are longing to be clothed with our dwelling, which is from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47, I quote, The second man, Christ, is the Lord arriving from heaven. Thirdly, the idea of mortality being superseded by immortality is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4. I quote, We wish to be clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, I quote, When this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall come to pass the word that has been written. Quote, Death is swallowed up in victory. These points of contact involving the use of identical language surely rule out any possibility that Paul has two entirely different events in mind, not least in view of the fact that he is writing to the same people and within a short space of time. To take 2 Corinthians 5 as referring to the moment of death, to mean that each individual receives immortality independently at death, is, as J.A.T. Robinson says, quote, to read the passage in clear opposition to 1 Corinthians 15. That's from J.A.T. Robinson's book, In the End God. The time has surely come to stop making Paul contradict himself and to acknowledge the remarkable consistency and unity which extend to all his writings on this central issue of life after death. The unity of the Pauline eschatology. We may demonstrate more fully the unity of Paul's thinking about the future life of believers by collating five relevant passages from Paul's epistles in a composite version. This will serve to reinforce the impression we've already gained that he looked for a single goal, that of the resurrection of all the faithful at the future parousia, or second coming. That moment is decisive for all the New Testament writers. The Pauline point of view can be traced as follows. Emphasis calls attention to the unity of his thinking. The fundamental tenet of Paul's future hope is stated as follows. I quote, And having the same spirit of faith as it's written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believed, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who resurrected the Lord Jesus will resurrect us also and present us with you. Therefore we do not faint. We do not consider the visible things, but those not visible. For the visible things are temporary, but the invisible pertain to the coming age. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle is destroyed, we have a house not made with hands fit for the coming age in the heavens. For indeed we groan in this tabernacle, longing to be clothed with our dwelling, which comes to us from heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 13 to chapter 5, verse 2. We are awaiting, Paul says, the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven. Philippians 3, verse 20. The second man is the Lord from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 
verse 47. We groan in ourselves, awaiting the redemption of our body. The sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory about to be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of God. As we read in Romans 8, verses 23 and 28 and 29. If we suffer together, we shall also be glorified together. Romans 8, verse 17. When Christ our life is manifested, then you also shall be manifested with him in glory. Colossians 3, verse 4. We do not wish to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up in life. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Those that are Christ's at his coming. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. For it is fitting that this corruptible be clothed with incorruptibility. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 and 53. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who remain until the coming of the Lord shall be caught away together to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. We are confident and wishing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. To die together and to live together. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 3. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. Philippians 1, 23. If by any means I may arrive at the resurrection of the dead. Philippians 3, verse 11. From these passages, it will be seen that Paul expects to be with Christ at the future resurrection, not before. The restoration of the biblical scheme will resolve the unwarranted tensions which have been created by our efforts to superimpose a traditional belief on Scripture. Firstly, resurrection will mean a real transition of dead people from death to life, and that great future event will regain its central position in Christian thinking. Secondly, the individual will be thought of 
as an indivisible unity, not as a soul deprived of its body at death. In this way, the poison of Greek ideas may be purged from the contemporary Christian outlook. Thirdly, the intensity of the enthusiasm for the return of Christ, shared by all the New Testament writers, will be restored. The traditional emphasis on the moment of death, which is of no consequence to the New Testament writers, has most successfully dissipated that intensity of expectation so that the biblical Christian view of the future is all but unknown in church circles. Finally, there will be no need to bend isolated verses of the New Testament to conform to a non-biblical tradition. A detailed exegesis of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The theme treated by Paul is the prospect of resurrection for all true believers. He begins with a general statement of the topic he's about to consider. I quote, He who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up also through Jesus and present us with you. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14. The argument proceeds on the basis of this central hope. I quote, For this reason we do not faint. Verse 16. Paul then contrasts the temporary sufferings we undergo in our present body with the glory of the resurrection life to be granted at the future parousia. There's a marked emphasis on a favorite Pauline theme, the contrast between the present evil age, Galatians 1.4, and the messianic age to come, 1 Timothy 4 verse 8. Our present tribulation is momentary and insignificant compared with the glory pertaining to the coming age, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. The authorized version has the word eternal there from the Greek aeonios, which should be rendered, quote, relating to the coming age, as explained by Dr. Nigel Turner in his Christian words. The things now visible are temporary. The invisible things of the future pertain to the coming age. If our present earthly house or body is destroyed in death, we have, the prospect is certain, a new body awaiting us. The new body is adapted to the life of the coming age. We long to put it on when it comes with Christ from heaven. We shall not then be found naked, as to say in death. Compare the naked grain planted in the ground with a view to resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 37. We do not wish to be disembodied, but clothed with immortality at the future resurrection when death is to be swallowed up in life. The Spirit is the earnest of the promised immortality. We know that while we remain in our present bodies, we are absent from the Lord. Our desire 
is to leave our home in this body and take up our home with the Lord. That is to exchange our temporary body for the glorious body to be received at the future parousia or second coming. For we must all be manifested, Paul says, before the judgment seat of Christ when he comes. The whole argument concerns our condition now as contrasted with then. The interval between the present and the parousia is only relevant if one survives until the coming. The death state is dismissed by Paul since, as F.F. F. Bruce says, quote, he could not conceive of conscious existence in a disembodied state. That's a quotation from F.F. F. Bruce's Drew Lecture on Immortality in the Scottish Journal of Theology. To survive as a disembodied spirit is the one thing Paul shrinks from. Thus, while our traditional scheme is founded on the prospect of bodiless survival at the moment of death, Scripture makes a single reference to such a condition and rejects it as unthinkable. Our mistake is to read, quote, absent from the body and present with the Lord, as if this means absent from the body and thus disembodied immediately with the Lord. If, however, we look elsewhere in Paul's writings, we shall find that he expects to be with the Lord only through future resurrection at the parousia. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17. For Paul, absence from the body means presence with the Lord in the new body. Taking up an abode with Christ obviously implies a condition of the body, for the whole passage is based upon abode, dwelling, and tent as figures of the body. Paul has in mind, therefore, the exchange of the old for the new. I quote, In that day we shall indeed be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, verse 2. So union with Christ must await, quote, that future day. Philippians 1, verses 21 to 23. When it is seen that the simple scheme of sleep followed by an awakening in resurrection alone does justice to the biblical data, as well as being amply supported by the writings of early church history, then Philippians 1, verses 21 to 23, can hardly be taken to lend support to the notion of an immediate presence with Christ. Any problem posed by these verses is easily solved when it's understood that for those who fall asleep in death, the passage of time is of no consequence whatever. The believer who wakes in resurrection 
will have had no sense of the interval between death and resurrection. In Philippians 1, verse 23, Paul contemplates death for himself. He says, for me to die is gain. He thinks, naturally enough, of an immediate presence with Christ. For the dying man, the moment of closing his eyes in death, will be instantly succeeded by the sound of the last trumpet. He will have experienced no interval between death and the resurrection, which is his goal, according to Philippians 3, verse 11. We must insist, however, with Oscar Kalman, that the dead are still, quote, in time, as he says in his book, Immortality of the Soul or Resurrection of the Dead. Otherwise, Kalman adds, quote, the problem in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and following, would have no meaning. While the dead remain, quote, within time, for them there is no awareness of the interval from death to resurrection. In that sense, and only in that sense, the dying believer steps from this age into the kingdom of God, which will arrive at the parousia. If contemporary believers shared with Paul his clarity of vision and faith in the future, there would be no temptation to read into his writings the notion of a conscious pre-resurrection state. For Paul and for the early church, the resurrection to life at the parousia is the only goal. It is then that he hopes to be, quote, with the Lord. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, he describes the event which will usher him into Christ's presence. And so, in this way, we shall ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Some contemporary commentators, knowing that life as a disembodied spirit would have been inconceivable for Paul, are driven to the desperate expedient of suggesting that in 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle overthrew the entire eschatological scheme which he had received as a divine revelation in 1 Corinthians 15, only a short time earlier. They proposed that in 2 Corinthians, Paul expected the new body at death and not at the parousia. Such so-called solutions, however, point rather to a desire to preserve at all costs the traditional conscious existence for the dead apart from the resurrection at the future parousia.